Turning your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter 1. First Peter one. Let's go to the throne of grace one more time before we jump into the text. Father, we are thankful for your love for us that you have demonstrated your love by sending your only begotten son, Jesus, the eternal son who became man to take on our sin and our corruption and our guilt and shame upon himself, that we may have righteousness and purity and holiness. We thank you for your spirit who indwells your people, all those who trust your son. And we, now we ask, Lord, that you would visit us this evening, that we may have a sense of your nearness and a sense of your glory, that by merely looking at your glory, we are changed evermore to the image of your son. And so we ask, Lord, that you would take away all distraction, and that we may focus solely on our Savior Jesus, and that you would be glorified in us even as we sit at the feet of our Savior in your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to do your mighty work in us as you have promised to do, that we may be ever more like Christ and that we may ever more proclaim his glory. We pray these things in our dear, your dear son's name. Amen. Beginning with verse 1 of 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result 
in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this, uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of, of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter, we're very well acquainted with Peter. Peter was the run-in-a-mill man. He was a fisherman. He was hardworking. He was impetuous. He acted before he thought, at least most of the time. And yet, Jesus came and called him to be a disciple. To instead of be a fisherman, he was a fisher of men. And God called him to something greater than he ever dare dream. So Peter, in typical fashion, tells who he is. But in his mind, he's probably more of a name, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And so he gets right to the point, an apostle. An apostle is simply someone who was sent, sent one by Christ, someone who went and proclaimed the gospel, established churches, set up elders and pastors and deacons, someone who did the bidding of Christ. We also know that Peter was the one who denied Christ. Looking at Luke 22, and verse 31, Jesus says to, to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So you have Jesus who's foretelling the, the denial of, that Peter had of Christ. And he says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But Jesus says, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And now let me say that First Peter is the strengthening of his brothers. So he is coming and he's proclaiming 
the very Christ that he denied. And he's strengthening these, these fellow believers who are being persecuted and suffering for the sake of the Savior. Peter writes to a group of people that are essentially in Turkey and parts of Asia. And he refers to them as of the dispersion, which is typically meant by Jewish people, at least in the Old Testament, people outside of the land of Israel after Babylon took them to exile. But now Peter is referring to Christians who were living as strangers and foreigners in various regions. And they lived in these regions probably due to their persecution and challenges they were facing for being Christians. So Peter's use of the term dispersion or diaspora highlights the idea that the Christian believers to whom he was writing were living in a state of being scattered. There's something going on that there's, they have nothing that is safe. And they are in unfamiliar and potentially hostile environments. So Peter has a pastor's heart here. And he draws our attention initially, he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Much of the time we we kind of pass over even the title Christ, which is the Greek the English transliteration of the Greek Christos or in the Old Testament Messiah. There's something unique going on with Christ. Christ essentially means anointed one. And this idea of an anointed one is all throughout Scripture. Psalm 2 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his Messiah. Psalm 45, 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Ultimately speaking of Christ. Daniel 9 says, know therefore and understand that from going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince. There shall be seven weeks, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. Speaking of Christ and his crucifixion, being cut off. And then we have Acts 10. How God anointed, this is Peter speaking, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to to bind up 
the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And Jesus quotes this passage from Isaiah in the synagogue. When he began his public ministry, he read from the scroll of Isaiah and declared that the prophecy was fulfilled in him, indicating that he is the promised Messiah, the anointed one, sent by God with a specific mission to bring good news, liberty, and healing to those in need. So in his book, Delighting in the Trinity, Michael Reeves says this, in both the work of creation in Genesis 1 and the work of salvation or recreation in the Gospels, God's word goes out from him by his spirit. The Father speaks, and on his breath his word is heard. It all reveals what this God is truly like. The Spirit is the one through whom the Father loves, blesses and empowers his Son. The Son goes out from the Father by the Spirit. Hence, Jesus is known as the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ. For he is the one supremely anointed with the Spirit. As kings and priests, even prophets, were anointed and consecrated to their tasks with oil, In the Old Testament, Jesus is anointed with the Spirit. Indeed, the terms son and anointed one are sometimes almost synonymous, like in Psalm 2. But the Father loves and empowers the Son by giving him his Spirit. So, when Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he is saying that Christ is, Jesus is the anointed one. He is supremely anointed. He is the one that has stepped into time and he has fulfilled everything that the Father has called him to do. And so we have Christ as the one who is supremely anointed. And so after Peter introduces himself in relation to Christ and mentions the people to whom he is writing, he begins according to verse 2, according to the knowledge, foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God's foreknowledge is not limited to a mere awareness of a predicted future, but rather it encompasses his sovereign plan and purpose for all creation. It is a proactive, purposeful, and loving view of foreknowledge knowledge based on God's infinite wisdom, power, sovereignty over all things, and love for his people in grace. So God has foreordained his people before time began. In the sanctification of the Spirit,
Peter explains the work of the Holy Spirit is involved in the believer's election or choice. And sanctification refers to the process of being set apart or made holy by God. In this context, it can refer even to the Holy Spirit's purifying effect, consecrating believers, making them set apart for God's purposes and transforming them into the image of Christ. It emphasizes that the work of the Holy Spirit is essential in the believer's salvation and sanctification. Paul speaks of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. You, that each one of you know how to control his, his body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgresses and wrong his brother in, in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called you to impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So really, this is nothing new. This, we, we see this throughout the New Testament. But also, even the book of Leviticus tells what sanctification is. A common perspective of sanctification is living a, a life of good deeds after your initial salvation. The fruit of the Spirit brought forth for our li- in our lives And now, good deeds are certainly an an integral part of the Christian life, but that's not exactly what sanctification is. So, what is sanctification? Before we answer that, though, let's be confronted with the fact that God himself is holy. He is the Holy One who is inherently holy. This means that any person, place, or thing like the temple or sacrifices or you and me as believers and anything that is called holy has holiness because it has been bestowed by God. He sanctifies us because he shares his holiness with us. One theologian explains it this way. Now, the way this worked in the Old Testament, God brought things up into the orbit of his sanctifying presence there in, the, in, this, in his sanctuary. So the closer you were to, to the presence of God, the holier things became. But now in the New Testament, for the Christian, Jesus Christ is the location of our holiness. He is holiness incarnate. And what the Father and the Son do is God sends his holying spirit The Holy Spirit is a spirit that makes holy. He sanctifies. 
And the Holy Spirit brings us into the sanctifying orbit of Jesus Christ. It brings, uh, he brings us into the presence of Christ so that we can receive the holiness of Jesus, so that Jesus can give us his holiness and therefore sanctify us as his own. So sanctification, quite simply, is to make holy. God in Christ, by his spirit, enlivens us and unites us to himself. And so as Christ himself is the supreme anointed one, the one that God has called to be the apostle of the church, all those who trust him are anointed in Christ. And so we too are supremely anointed because of Jesus. So according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So Peter continues and states the purpose or result of God's foreknowledge and sanctifying work, his holying work of the Holy Spirit, which is for the obedience to Jesus Christ and being cleansed by his blood. Obedience to Jesus Christ is a submission and allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Master, following his teachings and commands. And then sprinkling with his blood is a cleansing and purifying effect of Christ's sacrificial death on the cross, which cleanses believers from their sins and grants them forgiveness and redemption it underscores that the believer's election and sanctification have a purpose of producing obedient followers who have been cleansed by his blood. Even the author of Hebrews speaks to this in Hebrews 11, and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. There is faith in Christ that makes believers be pleasing to God. So the holying work brings obedience to Jesus by faith, submission to his lordship, and the cleansing of our sin with a purifying effect, granting forgiveness, redemption, producing obedient followers in order to do good works. For we are his workmanship, as Ephesians tells us. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we do good works not to gain anything from God, but we do good works because we have everything in Christ.
may grace and peace be multiplied to you. If you have not heard it, I highly recommend John Ficey's sermon in 1 Thessalonians on these two words. So with that, I won't go into them. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So now we have God the Father and Christ and Jesus. But I will also submit that when Scripture, when the writers of Scripture speak of Christ, the title, that title includes the Holy Spirit. Because what is Christ? Christ is the anointed one. And by the Holy Spirit, Jesus himself is the supremely anointed one. So when Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is inherently including the Holy Spirit. According to his great mercy, it is only by the mercy of God that we obtain salvation. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope. We have a hope that is unfailing, a hope that endures because our hope is in Christ and is because of his death, but then his resurrection from the dead. And so we are caused to be born again. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Sometimes we go through situations in life and they are low valleys, right? We've, especially older people, we've been there where life is, it's, it's dark and you have, you feel like everything is being taken away from you and you think that there, what hope is there? But we have been caused dear one, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We know the gospel. We know that in eternity past, the Father and Son had a, had a love and fellowship unlike anything else for eternity, just the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then the Son comes and he takes on flesh and he puts on corruption for us.
and he was raised for our justification. And so we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, kept in heaven for you. Do you realize, do you, do you, under, do you really understand that Jesus himself is in glorified body right now, seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He himself is the one who is our inheritance, who is imperishable, who is undefiled, unfading, and he himself is kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. When he says, who by God's power, he's speaking of the people to whom he is writing. That they and we by extension of belief in Christ, we who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Sometimes life will come and hit you hard and you wonder, am I really saved? Am I really loved by the Father? Am I really in Christ? Does the Holy Spirit really indwell in me? But it is by God's power that we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter is even, there's this, there's this tension of the now and not yet, that yes, we have a salvation that is beyond what we can ever dare ask or think. And even when Paul says in similar vein, that we who are believers, we are yearning for the revelation of the sons of God, the redemption of our bodies. And so Peter is speaking of this, that we have a, a, a salvation being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. One day we will see it. We will see Christ face to face. And we will experience what we now hope for. Verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even now, we, as believers, we live in a fallen world. And in order to live in light of Christ and his word and all that he is for us, we will experience hardships and persecution and different forms of suffering because 
the world is against Christ and all that he stands for. Psalm 2 speaks to this. And yet we have Christ. In this, you rejoice because we rejoice in who God is for us in Christ. And so for a little while, even Peter knows that the suffering of this world relating to just general suffering, but also suffering for Christ, it's just a little while. I know it doesn't seem like it right now, but in eternity, in eternity, there, is, there will be a time when we will experience such glory that the sufferings for Christ will be like nothing. Are they nothing? No, they're not nothing. But they will feel like it because the glories beyond what we can think and imagine will be so great. But there will be times where we, we will be grieved by various trials. But Peter also reveals to us that there is a purpose to these trials Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith. So I teach the high school, Sunday school class, and this morning we were walking through the parable of the sower. And you have different groups of people representing by different paths. You have the hard ground, rocky soil, thorny soil, good soil. And sometimes, even with what Pastor Jamie preached on this morning, dovetail with that so well as he connected it as well, Sometimes we are not so vigilant and so we allow things to come into our lives that are not profitable, are not helpful in the Christian faith in our lives. But Peter says that the suffering for Christ is that which tests the genuineness of our faith. It is something that is important. And even Hebrews speaks to that even Christ learned obedience through the things he suffered. And he, the one who is supremely anointed, learned obedience through the, suffer, through the things he suffered, we too will also lean must learn obedience to him through the things that we suffer. And so even in relation to the different paths of, of where the, the gospel seed has been sown, we know that sometimes we do allow ourselves to get rocky and thorny there are cares of this world that 
overcome us and we, we, we allow things to infiltrate our thinking. But ultimately, we need a faith that endures. And so the sufferings that we go through for Christ, they test us and they test our genuineness of our faith. And Peter says, more precious. So our faith is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And he's recognizing that this testing is severe at times. And it feels like you have no hope. But ultimately, even the testing of our faith, even through that, we might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So though you have not seen him, you, have, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So he's speaking of people who have, have they've never seen Jesus in the flesh. They have just heard the gospel and yet they believe and they love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, and what is the outcome of our faith? The salvation of our souls. So I I want you to notice here that Peter is not neglecting or diminishing our suffering for Christ. He even states that it is tested by fire, but he couches this suffering in between the blessed God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the salvation of our souls. And so, dear one, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. There is a pursuit of joy in Christ. And the one who is supremely anointed has invited you into his life so that you too are supremely anointed in him. So the very Holy Spirit, the very holying spirit that came upon Christ has come upon you with holying effect, purifying you and making it so that You are like Christ. And so throughout life, we are being sanctified and we are being made even more holy in progression, even though in Christ we are holy, we are righteous. And one day, we will see him 
face to face and we will experience with joy the inexpressible and filled with glory type of salvation that is full and complete. No more sin, no more suffering, and we will have joy eternal. So concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, the gospel, to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, sent from heaven things into which angels long to look. And so we have something that has been revealed to us by the prophets because it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. So I leave you with this. Press on. Salvation is sure. God in Christ will make salvation be full and joyful. Look to him, the one who is the supremely anointed one who has invited you into being supremely anointed by the Spirit in him. And so we press on knowing that our salvation one day will be full because our salvation is in Christ and we are ready to be revealed. We are ready for our salvation to be revealed in the last time when Christ comes.